the faster they grow, obviously, the more they make, and there's a multiple on exit. And we think that model aligns interests, and we think it makes for a, frankly, a better product. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven, and eight-figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven-figure exit, and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, a subset of the amazing FBA family of podcasts. I'm your host, Michael Vesey. Today, we are talking about challenger brands. What are they and um, what does that mean for everyone who's in the e-commerce space? And we are talking with Patrick O'Connell, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of Branded, an e-commerce aggregator focused on challenger brands. First of all, warm welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here, Michael. Yeah, you too. Let's talk about today's topic. What on earth is a challenger brand? Can you define that for us? Sure. So it's a term of art that we've developed. And in our definition of a challenger brand is a brand that is small, could be 10 plus million dollars in revenue, but it super serves a core consumer. And it has the, the ability in our minds to get to a hundred million dollars. And so these are the types of brands that we look to invest behind. Excellent. So that sounds like uh, on the higher end of the, the sort of people that I end up serving in the 10K Collective Mastermind so, and, and some of the people listening, or at least they can aspire to get there. Obviously, you think in quite big picture terms of so US dollars of uh, turnover of 10 million is quite small. You're looking for to grow them to 100 million or more. So that sounds quite sort of highfalutin, ambitious. Why does that matter for the average e-commerce seller, shall we say? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's useful to unpack it a little bit. Why does, you know, why do challenger brands matter and why do they exist? And I think there's some key takeaways for folks who are in the market selling products. And so I think as we think about the evolution of the consumer products market, we've really moved from a closed system to an open system. Closed system being it used to be you had to beg and plead Walmart to get onto their shelves. It took a lot of time, a lot of capital. They controlled the aisles. Amazon has obviously democratized that. It's the same thing on the media side. To acquire customers, you used to have to spend hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars on TV advertising, et cetera. Now it's an open system with social media providing direct access. And so while the market has and the market has been radically democratized, so the barriers to entry are very low. So you can scale e-commerce businesses profitably from very low levels. So that's amazing. And a lot of your audience has done this. They've done the proverbial zero to one. They've created something out of nothing. These businesses are now doing hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in, in annual revenue. And that is amazing. But the flip side of that is it is an open system now. Everyone can compete. So the market is very crowded. And so what we, what our point of view is, or our thesis is that in these open systems, the value chain, the value and the value chain is shifting towards the creative class, right? So 
It used to be that if you were a tinkerer or creator, it's hard to create a product and sell it. With crowdfunding sites, with open e-commerce platforms, open social or open advertising platforms on social media, search media, et cetera, anyone could launch these products. And so we think there's a real opportunity, but it's harder to do launch a product than it is just have a, a the, the creative class on the media side where it's the, the barrier century a little bit easier because it's just, it's a camera, it's a microphone, it's a video, what have you. And so there's a need for someone in the market to provide a platform or services for these creatives to launch products. And so that's where Brandon comes in. And that's where we look to partner with some of these entrepreneurs who have created unique products that stand out in the market, that have unique branding that we define as challenger brands that they may only have a million or 5 million or 10 million in revenue today, but they're in markets that are big enough and the products are special enough and the brands are differentiated enough to have the potential runway to get to $100 million. And that's how we think about the opportunity. And I like the big picture thinking and, and the kind of courageousness of the size of the vision, because I think that there are the classic error that people fall into is excessive optimism, isn't it? When they're newbies and they're looking at a market and just because somebody's doing a million dollars a month doesn't mean any percentage of that's going to be yours or that it's going to be profitable if it is. So that's the, the classic beginner error. But the other error is underestimating the size of what we got. And I've seen, and I was amazed to observe firsthand some of the brands we've had through the 10K Collective Mastermind grow from, I think, like about two to $3 million a year rent revenue to about 25, mind-blowing. And, and I, I, they have the ambition now, which I don't think they used to, the vision that they could get to 100 million. And that feels real, which is an incredible thought, isn't it? So let's, let me ask you another question about the brands themselves. And so th you've got a view of the marketplace as a whole, the potential. Mm -hmm. Why mm -hmm. do challenger brands matter? What do they actually do for in, in the marketplace? How do they change the marketplace? Yeah, I think they, they super serve a specific customer. So if you think about the large CPG companies out there, they've spent the last several decades really consolidating supply chains and consolidating products so that they've got these big products that are meant to be everything to everybody. So if you're Procter & Gamble selling dish detergent or toothpaste or what have you, they've created these massive brands that the brands aren't relevant to them unless they're doing billions of dollars in revenue. But you can't be all things to all people. And so we think over time in the same way that media has become fragmented with the advent of the internet, with the advent of open systems, as I've described on Amazon and, and social and search media, there's an opportunity to create kind of more narrowly defined brands that are super serving a, a specific, you know, target audience. So it could be if Gillette was convincing people for the last few decades that to be the best a man can get, he had to have a clean shaven face. Well, now there's people who want to grow beards and there's different types of beard hair. And so there's a market now for beard oil. And so we've got a brand that caters to the, to a very narrow market um, of, of African-American men with beard oil, some other products now built around that, et cetera. Because you're able to have these small businesses that can scale profitably from very small levels, you can super serve these smaller uh, buckets of consumers. And so you're slicing the pie more thinly, but in effect, taking share from these mega brands that are don't really speak to anyone directly. They're just mega brands. I guess it's the logical conclusion of if you read The Long Tail by Chris Anderson when it came out in about 2007. Incredibly mm -hmm. prophetic because Amazon's really implemented that, haven't they, in this narrower e-commerce space, if you will. And I suppose mm -hmm. we were talking about the wider retail space. And I guess that separation between this is starting to feel very artificial, isn't it? Because brands that didn't used to take the internet seriously only had to have experience of the pandemic for a year and then they suddenly did. So I guess we're in a different world now in terms of that division between online and offline 
it, would you say that's now irrelevant or would you say actually we still got a head start if we've started online is there such a thing as a digitally native business or is that an irrelevant i think there's such a thing as a digitally native business that's a business that started online i think the coin of the realm right now is really about customer relationships however and so i think whether you're an old line cbg company or whether you're a digitally native brand that's what you're driving towards. You're trying to establish that customer relationship. It can be harder to do if you're sitting, if Walmart's sitting between you and the customer, it can be hard to do if Amazon's sitting between you and the customer. It's quote, easier to do if you're a direct to consumer brand, but obviously more expensive as well. And so I think part of being a, a part of where we see the value in trying to create these challenger brands is that they, they speak more deeply to people. So no one has a emotional relationship with. I'll make something up, not to pick on a brand, but Crest Toothpaste, for example. But there are smaller, more niche brands where people have built communities around a specific toothpaste or a hair care product or what have you that is super serving a particular audience, building community around those brands. That is something that's really unique and, and oftentimes or almost inevitably comes from an entrepreneur that is, is plugged into a certain community or a certain zeitgeist amongst uh, a group of people and can create these brands that, that serve that particular community. And I think what we've also seen is over time, the younger demographic, they care about where their products come from, the mission of the products, how they're sourced, the ethos of the brand, et cetera. And so I think that has been a sea change that's happened over the course of the last you know 10 years that we think will continue. And so having brands that speak more deeply to people is important, especially for the other generation. Yeah, that's a common thing that I hear from really expert marketers. If I'm not going to mention another aggregator, but somebody else who we had on who's very good on the marketing was talking about that. And of course, the young consumers of today are the majority or even everyone eventually as well. So it's future proof in that way. So I guess you've started hinting about one of the ways, how do we create this actual challenger brand is what I want to focus on for the rest of the, um, this episode. You've hinted already about people who are entrepreneurs are plugged into a certain community. And we've had, for example, somebody on, I don't think they were allowed to use the word for legal reasons when they, we interviewed them, but CrossFit, and that's mm -hmm. a very obsessive type user and their yes. products speak directly to them. And they've mm -hmm. absolutely nailed something in a space, which frankly is utterly commoditized, which is an amazing success. So how do we begin to do that? Do you think, let me deal with that first idea first. Um, do we actually have to be as the entrepreneur or founder, co-founder, a member of the target market, or is that only one of the routes in? Uh, I think it's one of the routes in. I think that the comment I'd make there is that authenticity is absolutely critical. I think the internet, as someone said to me recently, the internet smells a fraud immediately. I think we, we, we could probably all collectively agree that we live in almost a post-truth era right now. And so anyone trying to sell something that's not real is going to be immediately called out. So I think authenticity is key. Being a member of that community is potentially very important as a leg in, but you can, you, you can define communities very broadly too. And so it could be as thin as uh, a brand that is founded, is female founded and has that sort of ethos built into it. It can be that. It doesn't have to be that you're a member of some small sect that sort of only converses amongst themselves and people, everyone's unique. And we all are members of multiple communities, quote unquote, you're just trying to pluck up people's heartstrings around topics and ideas that matter. Yeah. You make a good point that we're all members of quotes, multiple tribes, especially online where you don't need to be limited by geography. And yeah, it's good to know that we don't have to be you know, all as obsessive as CrossFit is because I, I was just thinking, am I obsessed enough with areas? And, and I guess my background in the classical music would be yes, but a lot of people listening 
wouldn't necessarily have that kind of obsessive community ready to roll. Okay, so what else do we need to, to be doing to create a genuine challenger brand? I guess one thing that strikes me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, what I love about your the size of the vision, if you like, that you're bringing is that you could knock Procter & Gamble in if there's sort of toothpaste or, or home product space or a L'Oreal in the makeup space off their pedestal by taking big enough chunk out of their revenue to, to make a big difference to multi-billion dollar brands in some cases. Uh, so how do we know whether what we've got has the potential for that versus it's just a nice little niche, we filled mm-hmm. it, we're serving it well, and that's it, it's going to be a $10 million a year business and that's the max- maximum. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a multi-layered cake. And I think for us, foundationally, we look at the size of the market. And so we play in certain verticals. For example, beauty and personal care is a big business of ours. And so we're very attuned to, to the market and what's trending. So step one is entering a market that is growing itself. And typically you will, it's always easier when the wind's at your back than in, in your face. And so there are certain supplement categories. There are certain kind of personal care categories that are are very much in kind of growth mode. So being in a growth category is step one. And then narrowly defining either the, the product and or the customer base is step two. And so you're not trying to compete with soap brand X, but there's something y- unique about the product. So I'll make something up that sounds silly. Maybe it's too narrow. You, you could imagine a, a, an SPF, a, a skin cream that is made to work especially well at high altitude because the sun is more powerful there. I'm, I'm making stuff up. It could be for skiers, potentially. I don't know what happened to ski. So that would maybe resonate with me. But but generally speaking, when you find that sort of like niche, then you become known for that thing. Then you can build a little bit horizontally. And that's part of the sauce, part of the secret sauce that we look for in some of the entrepreneurs that we partner with. There's something that's typically you see, it's the one product that sort of gets you on the map. And then you can start to build a brand more horizontally around that. Great. And so by horizontally, you mean, because people in sort of corporate speak love to talk about horizontal and vertical everything, horizontal and vertical integration. Mm-hmm. So vertical, horizontal meaning not so much in the same, I suppose you call it vertical in, in, in corporate speak. So the same product category, but a related one, but not the same. So instead of skin cream, it would be, I don't know what, what, what would be next hair for care. you as a skier. Hair, hair care for skiers. Right. It's, oh, it's, it's the, same one, the same umbrella brand. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it holds the same appeal and ethos to the audience, but Instead of selling some of the SPF cream, it's, it could be a specialized hand lotion for people with, you know, eczema or what have you. Yeah. Interesting. Now, what you just said sounds like you're focused on the market there because the same person, the skier might need an SPF, you know, it's cream that works particularly well at high altitudes. Mm-hmm. And, and I can imagine actually a very aspirational aspect to that brand that would appeal to a lot of people who don't ski, but think they would like to. And a bit like everyone who wears Nike trainers doesn't tend to actually run very much, etc. cetera. Right. I can see how mm-hmm. that could get quite big. But then the the horizontal thing sounds to me, okay, the production, even the product development, the production, even the physical location of production for a skin cream, if I was selling it in the US, I'd probably get it made in the US. I would expect Mm -hmm. to jump through FDA approval, et cetera. It would be expensive to create the formula, but then probably per unit, very cheap. Whereas if I'm getting hair care products, maybe it's it's completely different supply chain. So I guess what you're implying there is that you're going to specialize by the customer base and become known for that. Now that makes a lot of sense. And as a marketing driven person myself, who doesn't love supply chain sides, mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who does, but some people are good at it. <laughs> then <laughs> that, that supply resonates. Chains. Love supply chains. Yeah. But here's what I would say though. Um, 
given the era we're moving into where, for example, Shanghai is shut down. It's a city of 26 million people on lockdown. I've got mm -hmm. clients who, who can't ship stuff in from there. We're going to get more expensive oil. We've got all sorts of geopolitical ramifications that mean the supply chain is going to be more challenging. My challenge to you is, that, okay, does it make sense to create a brand on that way? Or do we need to think more about the supply side than marketing than we used to? Or do you think that the same logic applies? As so as I think about sort of the, the two ends of the supply chain, the consumer at one end and the, you know, the product development at the other, you got to meet somewhere in the middle. It, I think is, I think is our view. It just so happens that at, at Brandon, we happen to be focused on three verticals. So beauty and personal care being one, health and wellness being a second and home and kitchen being a third. The home and kitchen, generally those products are sourced from China. So you've got the difficulties that you, you know, described in terms of ocean freight and the lockdowns in China currently, et cetera. On the other two categories are generally U.S. sourced products. So you don't have that same degree of the supply chain complications. So I would say on, on, and frankly, that's part of the reason we like those two kind of vertical better. So you don't yes. have to play in that realm. The other thing I'd say is, is as I think about your audience and, and, and people potentially coming onto our platform as entrepreneurs, if you were building an aggregator that was primarily focused on sourcing products from China into the US, you would need to build a platform, but the platform would be really focused on that supply chain. It would be a thinner platform, as I'd describe it, in terms of the, the value add or the services added. For a branded company like us, we're, we're engaging with consumers on Amazon, off Amazon, et cetera. The platform that we've built is, I would describe it as a little bit thicker, meaning it's got to have additional value added services on there. And frankly, they're the same services that a CPG company would be providing, right? So it's brand strategist, it's new product development, it's integrated supply chains here in the US, et cetera. And it's a, it's a heavier lift, I would say, but we think in order to create the long-term value, you have to be there. And that's our orientation towards the market. And so as we look across the FBA and D2C space, we are looking for those sort of the superstars that have created something unique, whether the, 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 the product itself is unique or the brand is unique. Usually it's both. They don't necessarily are independent. And where there's maybe a dearth of capital or certain expertise in certain areas, what have you, we can bring that to bear. And because we are vertically focused, we have category level resources. So internal counsel around regulatory compliance and advertising claims, et cetera. But those are the type of things that we specialize in. That makes a lot of sense. That's one of the big barriers to entry. I haven't done it, but I've got lots of clients and, and friends who've done the supplements route. And it, it always strikes me that the regulatory lift, if you like, is the biggest barrier to entry, which, by the way, is a great thing. If there are no barriers to entry, according to um, a book that I've been absorbing with great interest, I'm still trying to digest Porter's, I think it's 1970s, but it still holds yep, the competitive sure. challenge, the competitive factors that make an industry as a whole likely to be lower, middle, higher profit and how you set your strategy. I guess mm -hmm. that having a barrier to entry is really nice as long as you're on the right side of it. <laughs> so if you guys can help with that because you specialize, that great makes a great deal of sense. And I suppose what you're saying, if I'm hearing you, is something along the lines that a strong enough brand has enough strength that you're willing to weather the supply chain issues that happen to come with it. But all things being equal, you'd rather be sourcing the US to sell in the US, et cetera. Is that a fair summary? Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. Great. I mean, which makes sense. I'm yeah, been following great interest uh, the work of people like this Peter Zion, who's an American. He gets the international global situation, which is pretty unusual, <laughs> if I may mm -hmm. say so. And he's he totally gets, and I think he's predicted the war in Ukraine. And I do think that the supply chain side is something that people don't address directly unless it's what they think of as a temporary blip. And I think seeing it as a longer term thing is becoming bigger and bigger structural part of whether a business is going to be viable. That, that's my take on it. What, what's your take on, say, the kitchen side? 
where lockdowns in China are more to the point, longer term issues in global movements of goods are an issue. Well, yep. What's your take on that? Are you trying to move away from that or you, do you take that in your stride? I would say we, we're, we're, we take it in stride for now. We're in that business. I think you just have to be a little bit more cautious there. I think the barriers to entry to your point are a little bit lower. You're effectively competing or actually in some cases competing with your suppliers who every year become more sophisticated. They can sell on Amazon themselves, et cetera. And so unless you've got something that's different or special in terms of the product or you're really innovating the product, you're going to be at the mercy of a much, much more competitive market. And frankly, it's one of the things we see across all of e-commerce as well. I come from the from from a finance and, and capital markets background as well. And so those are very efficient markets. If you think about it from an economic perspective, I view Amazon similarly, which is it's an incredibly efficient and competitive market. And so I think what you're seeing is you're seeing product development cycles accelerate. There's all sorts of third-party tools. We have them. We're developing some proprietary tools on top of that. Other people are as well. You can see changes in the market extraordinarily quickly and people can move on those and you can develop products very fast. So if you're a big CBG company, it's probably taking you 12 months, 18 months, maybe longer to launch a product. At Branded, we've launched whole new brands and products within the span of months, four or five months, when we see opportunities. And so I having those capabilities internally, whether you're an aggregator or whether you're just a, a seller, thinking about product development and faster cycle times, it's just the nature of this game right now. It's going to become more competitive over time. Yeah. And you make a very interesting point about the, the competitive landscape become, yeah, I, I've always thought of Amazon as basically Amazon did for e-commerce, what the stock market did for stocks for many centuries mm -hmm. before. But so tell me about this. I guess that's, I guess what Porter would call, is it forward integration? So in other words, if your suppliers sell to you and you sell to Amazon, yeah. <laughs> formerly it would have been your suppliers sell to you, you sell to some small mom and shop shops times a thousand or maybe Walmart, and then they sell to mm -hmm. the consumer. So we've mm -hmm. removed one link in the supply chain, made it cheaper than the consumer, but created hyper competition for ourselves. And you mm -hmm. mentioned the fact that Chinese suppliers have a, a habit of selling direct to Amazon. Why would they not? What about American suppliers? Are they not as American retails, as I understand it, at the fastest rate since the Second World War? And, mm -hmm. and already in the supplement space there, the place, if it goes on or in your skin, they say don't source from China famously. So mm -hmm. what, what is the danger level of, say, a supplement supplier just bypassing us as brand creators and go direct to Amazon? And mm -hmm. if it's dangerous, intense, what do we do about it? Yeah. So I think one key point of difference between the maybe kitchen products sourced from China and a skincare brand sourced in the US is the degree to which the brand matters to the consumer. And so I think Amazon's a very tactical market from a marketing standpoint can, in, in certain respects. And so that can all be mostly replicated whether you're sitting in the US or China. So the Chinese factory can sell a, a set of plastic dishware as effectively as anyone for the most part, maybe cheaper because the labor costs are, are, are lower there. And But in the US, I think consumers they care about where skin products are sourced or supplements are sourced. And so they don't generally, they generally prefer a U.S. source product. So it begs the question that you just raised, which is, geez, like you could have a, a co-manufacturer or a manufacturer in the U.S. selling online. And we have seen some of that. Frankly, we've seen more brands integrate themselves, meaning have their own manufacturing as opposed to manufacturers selling on Amazon. But because there's that additional threshold of having a brand out there, it's generally difficult for a manufacturing organization to develop that muscle. It's just, it's a little bit unnatural for them. We've seen on occasion, some do it. It's just a lot harder. And so typically they they try to just stick to their, to their knitting. And frankly, from some of the businesses I've seen in that space, they operate on relatively decent margins. So their core businesses are okay. <laughs>
Yeah, so I mean, I guess that the assumption that I'm making as well is that that they would want to um, sell direct to consumer. And of course, one of the things we've had uh, discussions on the the program is when somebody's developed a good brand that works uh, business to consumer. So selling on Amazon primarily for most of the people we work with, they could actually swing around and sell it to Walmart or the big box retailers, which still exist, of course. And when you can get a hundred thousand units per order, it creates a cash flow problem. But on the other hand, it's a big chunky addition of revenue. So yes, I, I take your point. Maybe the US suppliers don't want to become direct to consumer experts. It's interesting. Would you say that's more the barrier or do you just think they know that they're not? I think it's, I think it's a matter of capabilities and focus ultimately. And the core business being, uh, you know, kind of strong enough and profitable enough. Frankly, that business has been growing in the US for many years. So there's not that strategic or capital imperative to to get out of their current business. The current yeah, it business makes is actually sense. reasonably strong. Yeah, it's funny how to a man with a hammer, all things look like a nail. I guess you and I are looking at the direct-to-consumer market and how it's blown up and the opportunity, but then I guess there are risks attached with changing your business model, as you say. Now, you mentioned the opposite, which I guess is, if you call it backwards integration, look at this, all these mm-hmm. backwards, forwards and vertical <laughs> integration mumbo-jumbo right. we're talking today. In other mm-hmm. words, if you sell supplements and you've been buying them from some manufacturer in Ohio, whatever, and you you live in Ohio and you think I could hire the same guys and use, I've got the patents that we own and I could set up manufacturing myself. So do, do you see that happening more or is that just a, an edge case? I think, yes, we see it as a viable strategy. Whether I see it happening more, it's a tough question to, to, to answer because I think it's not relevant for someone who's a small seller on Amazon. You've got to get to obviously a certain degree of scale for that to be you know relevant for But I do think it makes strategic sense for people at a certain scale because as I mentioned, there's real margin in some of those manufacturing businesses. And so it, it makes sense. And, and frankly, if you think about the Amazon ecosystem, everyone on the Amazon platform is renting Amazon's scale, essentially. So the only additional margin you can bring to Amazon is if on the gross margin side, if you could source more cheaply than your competitors, that's a point of differentiation that could be very valuable on a market as competitive as Amazon. Yeah, I was going to say, that's one of the there's competitive forces that, that Porter talks about. Again, I just find it a useful framework. It's not the only way of looking at it. But one is, yeah, if you have a very efficient market like Amazon, which tends to push down on the prices to the point where everyone's more or less breaking even. And the Chinese, mm-hmm. by the way, seem to be happy to sell at break even or below as far as we can reverse engineer the cost. <laughs> it's a whole different world, right? It's not really yeah. a capitalist, you know, profit-driven system from what I can tell. But when you're dealing with um, supplements, people still don't have money margin, but there is price downwards competition. So I'd imagine that the importance of stripping out the cost becomes ever higher as a way to maintain margins. And do you think that's something more brand owners are going to go into in future because of that? I think possibly in certain categories, beauty being another that I think could be relevant because there are products with, for the most part, higher margins. And so that can make sense. The other comment I'd make more broadly about, we're talking about how competitive Amazon is as a marketplace that's worth noting is that there's been a ton of capital formation that's gone into not just aggregators, but D2C brands, et cetera, who are selling D2C, but also now on Amazon, they consider themselves to be e-commerce centric or even omni-channel from the get-go in some cases. But as more capital comes into the market, it's harder to, to compete, meaning you have people taking longer views of owning a certain category on Amazon. If rewind the clock 10 years ago, you could launch a product for, I'll make up a number, $100,000 but you would quickly you know, get to break even and, and earn your capital back and start earning returns on that capital. Given how massive Amazon's market is and the third-party marketplace is going to be a trillion dollars in the next handful of years. I don't know exactly sure when, but it'll be that size market. And if you've got a market that's, that is that big and you've got 
a, a view that having a very, having a very, uh, more reviews than the next guy, that's really valuable. And there's more capital at play. You could see people putting additional marketing resources and be willing to lose more money over a longer period of time to quote, control that shelf space on Amazon. And so I think it's one of the competitive dynamics that if you're a, if you're a smaller seller on Amazon, you've got to have in mind because as, as larger and better capitalized firms come into the market, they will view owning that prime shelf space, which is effectively the number of reviews that you have as a, a more and more important strategic imperative and will be willing to pay for it. And they'll pay for it vis-a-vis losing money in order to gain share to own that space and then make the profits back over a longer period of time. Yeah, uh, what you're saying entirely ties in with what I've observed, just even from the number of aggregators and forgive the name, but whatever acquirers of businesses and people putting together bigger and better funded to the main point um, Mm -hmm. entities in the e-commerce space and the selling side. In other words, the implication is pretty simple. More money sloshing in, people with deeper pockets can afford to wait longer till they make their cash back depending mm-hmm. on the covenants they have with their funders, of course, which you're mm-hmm. an expert in, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, longer than most of us probably who are self-funded. So it does say to me that you need to get big or get out or possibly sell out, uh, which is one of the other implications. But you guys offer a, a slightly different route, don't you? So tell us a little bit about, you mentioned, you just hinted at what you guys do mm-hmm. with brands or in conjunction with brands at Branded. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like you just buy them and then that's the end of the story. Correct. So tell us a little bit more about your view of how you work with people. Yeah, so I think we are uniquely situated in the market, I think, for a certain type of of seller. And so we're looking for one of three archetypes, which I'll get into in a second, but buy the business and fire the entrepreneur or the, the, the founder. We think there's an incredible amount of sort of value in IP, if I could use a, a coarse sort of economic word to, des- to describe it. Typically, this is someone who uh, understands the consumer extraordinarily well, understands the product really well, has a product roadmap in their head in terms of how to grow, really understands the competitive dynamic in, in the market broadly, but on Amazon specifically. And so we see a tremendous amount of value in having them on the platform. And so generally speaking, we don't, we, when we buy businesses, we also bring the entrepreneur on board. They have the joystick, I like to say. So they're, they still control the business. We, we own it, but they, they, they're running it day to day and we give them essentially a retained equity stake on an economic basis in that business. And so over the course of two or three years, they will, and and will construct ratcheted incentive payments because you've got the fundamental kind of building blocks of what made the business and the product work to begin with. And you're just turbocharging that with capital and or additional resources, but it's not for everyone. A lot of sellers just like, I just want my cash and go away. Yeah. If that's the case. That's great. Probably not your buyer, although we do that on occasion as well. But we really look for those sort of specials. And I mentioned the three archetypes. I'll go through them real quickly. Uh, And if I look back over the acquisitions that we've made, they fall into sort of three buckets. So the entrepreneurs tend to be, one bucket is just Amazon wizards. These are folks, guerrilla marketing, growth hacking, Amazon kind of of gurus that are able to have swashbuckled through the Amazon jungle in one. Bringing that DNA onto our platform and institutionalizing it is really valuable. So we like those type of entrepreneurs. The the second type are what I call the product gurus. These are folks that just have a passion for whatever it is. And in one case, we have someone on our platform who is a a clean freak and has and develops a plant-based brand, uh, both home and uh, personal care brand called Puracy. Sean could go chapter and verse on the ingredients in the soap and what makes it more viscous and what makes it more bubbly. That is really valuable. 
right? Because he's also got a product roadmap over the next kind of few years that we could turbocharge. So we like entrepreneurs like that a lot. And then the third category I call sort of the, the marketing gurus or influencers. And these are typically people who oftentimes have YouTube uh, channels and they're, uh, and influencers are a dirty word as well, but they're a guru, I would say. In a particular space, we looked at a, at one brand and the individual was one of the world's foremost experts in a very sort of narrow category of nutrition and had a massive following on, on YouTube. And we really like that because if you're solely reliant on Amazon or Facebook, God forbid, post Apple's kind of, it's going to be very hard to acquire customers profitably. So you need some sort of unique angle and that content that, that lives forever on, on YouTube and those kind of gurus are very powerful. I like and it. Very I, valuable. We like those as well. I like your optimism content. The list forever on insert social media platform here. YouTube feels like the safest for sure. It's been around yeah. since what, 2007, like, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, just a couple of reflections. I love your optimism that you can quote institutionalize a guerrilla marketing person. Somebody who's into guerrilla marketing and swashbuckling, which brings up them pirates for a British person that doesn't sound like a very institutionalizable person. Having said which, the British crown did give people license to, to be kind of state pirates on behalf of the British. And, and I suppose mm-hmm. the Dutch did the same. So there is some history mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, I guess you've got to manage those people in a certain way. I know some people like that in the Amazon ecosystem. They're always entertaining, yes. but they like loose cannons. But the product gurus, I can totally understand the value of that because if they really understand a very specific product category, that's really awkward stuff to find. It can take a long time. It doesn't mm-hmm. blow up like a social media channel. You've got to have your mistakes and, mm-hmm. and have your products with one-star reviews and your disgusted c- consumers and the old gummed up factory works and delayed mm-hmm. orders before you find that. So I can understand the value of that massively. And then mm-hmm. the marketing gurus, yeah, of course, as you say, the broader the reach, the less channel specific they are, that the less channel risk you have, I guess. You know, that yep. totally makes sense. So it sounds, so who do you guys work with then? So I've got a very clear sense in the broader sense. Is it specifically only for, you mentioned the, the three sort of categories, home and kitchen, uh, health and wellness, personal care. So you, you're limited mm-hmm. to those particular markets. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, and we like those markets because generally you could build brands around those products, hard to do so around commoditized products, obviously. So that's part of our thesis. Very smart. And so who would you say is, if if people are, you know, interested by what you say and think that might be some kind of partnership for them, let's define a little bit more. Who do you want to hear from or who who would benefit from talking to you guys? Yeah. If you're out there and you've got a brand that's doing even three or five million, but if there's, if, if it's truly different, the products are unique, you've got some, you're super serving a particular consumer, we'd love to talk to you. And you can access our website. It's joinbranded.com. And you can hit me up personally on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive there. But so I, I mentioned sort of challenger brand taking from 10 million. And hopefully, again, it's aspirational, but we want the market to be big enough that they could grow kind of 10x. But the reality is you start seeing that acceleration between sort of five and, and 10 million. And so we look at businesses at that size. Wow. I love that. Very interesting and an inspiring way of looking at, at the, the market. And also a bit of a warning to everyone else that we all need to be aware of the ecosystem we're working in. If somebody else is creating an incredible challenger brand and the CPG companies are willing to also come in and throw some money at the problem, we're all in that market. So we've got to find somebody with some capital and, and expertise to help us. And if you are the person for them, then I'm sure you'll get very grateful entrepreneurs. Well, Patrick, it's been a fascinating conversation. I know we're going to be talking to a colleague of yours shortly about other aspects of your work, but it's a fantastic conversation, very thought-provoking, slightly humbling uh, that uh, 10 million is a small brand, but it's all relative, right? But any final points that you think we haven't covered that you think people should know? No, it's been great to be here, Michael. I appreciate your time. Pleasure. No, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. 
I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.